and I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I'd invite you to go ahead and begin turning in your Bibles with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 1 through 11. And while Jesus' statement gets most of the attention from this text, we're going to see this morning there's much, much more here that should encourage and sustain the people of God. So please follow along with me then as we read from God's holy word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through the Apostle John, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else... Believe on account of the works themselves. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, we do acknowledge that You are the great God in heaven. You alone have created everything that we see. You alone control the winds and the waves and the movement of stars and planets. You alone cause the sun to rise and cause the sun to set. You alone provide food and clothing and shelter for for your people. You alone are God. And we know, Father, that the only place in which we can hear your voice speaking to us definitively, clearly, truthfully, is in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And so we pray, God, that you would help us now to hear what you have spoken in your Word, what you have spoken in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be soft, that our minds would be open. Father, we pray that those who are weak would be strengthened, that those who are disheartened would be encouraged, that those who are wayward would be corrected, and that those who are lost might be saved. Pray, Father, that you'd keep me from error, and that you'd grant your people discernment, that we would hold fast to the things that are true until that great final day when our Lord Jesus returns. We pray this in His name, confident that you hear us. Amen. Even in our secular culture, Christmas time is frequently associated with themes of light and joy. Think of Irving Berlin's classic song, White Christmas, and you'll find a good example. I'm sure you know how Berlin's song concludes, the the last verse, with a wish that all your days would be merry and bright. That closing line sums up the cultural approach to the holiday season. Why is Christmas so special. 
well, the culture says, because it's a time to pause from the ins and outs of life. You get a few extra days off work. You can pause from the ins and outs of life and you can find some bright merriment in the nostalgia and in the traditions of the holiday season. That's why Christmas is special, according to the culture. But if we're honest, that cultural approach to Christmas is far too shallow to actually be helpful. We can try to ignore it. We can even try to minimize it. But the reality is, this world is a dark place. And that darkness doesn't go away at Christmas time. We can wish for all the merriment and brightness that we want, but that doesn't change the reality that families are broken, children are orphaned, sickness ravages people's bodies, and wars rage all across the globe. When compared with those things, a wish for days that are merry and bright seems out of place. Almost disconnected from reality. I'm not saying those sentiments are wrong. They just don't go deep enough. But that's how the culture's celebration of Christmas seems most of the time. It lacks the depth to be helpful. Now, to the non-Christian, this shallowness is really not that big of a deal. What's one more inconsistency in a worldview that's full of them? But for the Christian, this shallowness presents a substantial and imposing problem. You see, we celebrate Christmas precisely because we believe Jesus' birth truly brought light to those dwelling in darkness. We celebrate Christmas because we believe the angels actually did proclaim good news of real joy. Far from being shallow, our celebration of Christmas rests on the joyful truth that the light of the world, God Himself, broke into our darkness in order to save His people. And therein lies the problem. Or maybe we should say the tension. As Christians, now just follow me here for a second. As Christians, how can we continue to proclaim and believe that there is good news of great joy when the world it, with all of its darkness, argues against a reason for joy. Do, do, you see, do you see the tension here? How can we continue to believe there's good news of great joy when the world argues against that very joy? Or to say it another way, how can our faith be sustained in the midst of such persistent trouble? It doesn't go away on December 25th. How can our faith be sustained? You see, it's the tension between trusting God on the one hand and living in the midst of a troubled world on the other. As believers, that tension is with us every single day. But we feel the tension more so this time of year at Christmas. Mercifully, however, we don't face this tension on our own. As we come to John 14, we find Jesus confronting this very problem, this same tension that we're talking about right now. Some context is essential here, so allow me to set the scene for us in John 14. The time is rapidly approaching for Jesus to depart from this world. He's just finished celebrating the Last Supper with His disciples, but the reality of His departure adds a somber note to their meal. 
What's more, Judas has just gone out into the night in order to betray Jesus. It's only a matter of time before Judas comes back with the mob and they lead Jesus away. And on top of that, just a few moments ago, Jesus predicted Peter's denial. If Peter, the lead disciple, will fall, then what's going to happen to the rest of them? You add all of that together, and this is a troubling time for Jesus' followers. The Master is leaving, Judas is plotting betrayal, and Peter's commitment to Christ is about to crumble and be shattered. In the face of that kind of trouble, how can their faith possibly be sustained? How can they keep trusting God in the midst of that kind of trouble? And into that tension, into that tension, Jesus speaks words of incredible comfort and hope. Friends, this is the main idea of the passage. This is what John 14 is about right here. At the end of His time on earth, Jesus comforts His disciples by giving them a solid foundation for their faith. He comforts them by giving them a solid foundation for their faith. He reminds them why they can trust the Father even in the midst of their trouble. And Jesus does this by pointing His disciples to Himself. In that sense, friends, this is an ideal passage for the final Sunday of Advent. This is an ideal passage for Christmas Eve. You see, as Christians, we don't have to ignore the reality of the world in order to pretend that we're joyful. We don't have to follow the shallow sentiment of a cultural Christmas in order to have some hope. No, we can face the trouble of this world head on. We, of all people, should be realistic. We can face the trouble of this world head on because we're armed with truths from the Lord Jesus Himself, truths that are more than capable of sustaining our faith and even producing that authentic, lasting joy that the angels told us Jesus came to bring. So let's turn our attention now to the text And I'd like you to notice with me three reasons why God's people can trust Him in the midst of trouble. Three reasons why. Three reasons why we can trust God in the midst of our trouble. The first is found in verses 1-3. to We can trust in the midst of trouble because Jesus is God's consolation to us. Jesus is God's consolation to us. As we noted a moment ago, John 14 occurs in a context of mounting tribulation. Judas has gone out into the night. Peter's fall has been clearly predicted. It's a a dark time. John 14 begins in darkness. But do you know who feels the weight of that darkness the most? Not the disciples, but Jesus. Understand, friends, in a matter of hours, Jesus will be betrayed. In a matter of hours, Jesus will be falsely accused. In a matter of hours, Jesus will be condemned, stripped, beaten, mocked, crucified, and most unthinkable of all, crushed under the wrath of God. All of that is weighing on the Savior's mind as John 14 begins. All of that is weighing on Jesus. He knows what's coming, and He knows it will be excruciating. And yet, what do we find the Lord Jesus doing at this dark hour? He's not bemoaning the trouble that He's going to face. He's not complaining or seeking emotional support. No, we find Jesus comforting His followers. 
Notice verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Friends, please don't breeze past those words. The Lord Jesus is more concerned for His disciples than He is for Himself. Verse 1 should grip us with the Savior's unbreakable commitment to comfort and care for His people. This is His dark hour. And who is He thinking about? Peter, John, Matthew. He's more concerned for them than He is for Himself. You see, this is part of God's purpose for sending His Son to the earth so that He might be our consolation in the midst of trouble. This is why we have God's Word, friends. This is why the Lord has given you His Bible. So that when you read the Scriptures, you hear the voice of the Savior saying, let not your hearts be troubled. He's God's consolation. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The Savior does not give us vague words of comfort and then leave us to ourselves to figure out how it works. No, the Lord Jesus is precise with His comfort. And He tells the disciples exactly why their hearts should not be troubled. Look with me at Jesus' specific sources of consolation. First off, there's the comfort of Jesus' person. Notice the rest of verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. As the disciples would certainly understand from the Old Testament, God deserves the trust of His people. Think of the life of Abraham and you'll see a prime example. Abraham knew God and he knew God by faith. So even in the midst of their trouble, the disciples would certainly understand the importance of faith in God. What's striking here, however, is that Jesus calls for His disciples to believe not only in God, but also in Him. Jesus deserves what only God should receive. Faith. You see, Jesus is connecting Himself with God the Father. Jesus is not simply the disciples' teacher. He's not their example. Jesus is their God. And the reality of His person should give them comfort. By trusting Jesus, the disciples place their lives in the hands of the One who upholds the universe. Can you sense the comfort there in their darkness? If Jesus can sustain the planets, then certainly He can sustain their faith. Jesus gives the disciples the comfort of His person. Next we find the comfort of Jesus' preparation. Notice verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? It's true that Jesus must leave, but He's not abandoning His disciples. It's just the opposite. Jesus is going ahead to prepare them, to prepare the way for them to enter the Father's presence. Jesus speaks of the Father as having a large house with many rooms, or we could say many dwelling places. Now, Jesus' point is not the size or the furnishing of those rooms. Jesus' point is the number. There are many rooms. Meaning, the Father has more than enough space to receive all who belong to Him. And since Jesus goes to prepare the way, no one will be left out. Remember, friends, the Father is purposeful in the salvation of His people. If His house has many rooms, it's because the Father wants them all filled. Not one of the rooms will be empty. Not one of God's people will be left out in the cold. Not one of God's people will be overwhelmed by the trouble of this world. That's the comfort Jesus gives here. He's leaving, yes. But He leaves to prepare the way for God's people. It's the comfort of Jesus' preparation. 
Closely connected with that is the comfort of Jesus' promise. His person, His preparation, and now His promise. Notice verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. At Advent, we celebrate Jesus' first coming into the world, but we also look forward to His second coming when He will return and gather His people to Himself. That second coming is what Jesus refers to here in verse 3. He promises His disciples that He's coming back. He's coming back. He promises them He's coming back and He's going to bring them into the Father's presence. Regardless of what we face on earth, we know that the Savior is faithful. He's the Good Shepherd. And there's a great day coming when He will descend again from the clouds of heaven and gather His people from the corners of the earth. He's coming back. But there's a bit more to verse 3 than we might see at first. Notice I mean, did you catch that Jesus drops the image of a house with many rooms? In verse 2, it's a house. In verse 3, there's no mention of the house. He doesn't say He will take us to the Father's house. Where is Jesus taking us in verse 3? To Himself. To Himself. You see, our comfort is not ultimately that we will go to heaven. Our comfort is that for all eternity, we will be with Christ. That's why heaven is so desirable. Because God is there. And going there means we get to be with the triune God. This is what the Savior promises His people. He will not stop His work until all of God's people are gathered into the Father's presence, singing the Son's praises, empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the comfort of Jesus' promise. Brothers and sisters, when we put all of this together, we get a better sense of the profound consolation we have been given in Christ Right now, Christ is working on our behalf. If you're a Christian today, you can make that personal. Right now, Christ is working on your behalf. His ministry continues in heaven and will one day be finished on earth. And therefore, we can trust Him. That's the connection. Please don't miss that connection. The Savior's comfort, His person, His preparation, His promise, His comfort is aimed at your faith. He comforts you so that you might be drawn in to His presence. That you might be drawn in to know Him and to relate to Him. And as you're drawn in to relate to Christ, because of His comfort, the eyes of your faith are shifted away from this world and fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, do you see the wisdom of the Savior at this point? By comforting His people, He's actually doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. The one thing that we need the most. Stop looking at the world and start looking at Him. That's what He's doing. His person, His preparation, His promise, all of that is intended to shift the eyes of faith and focus them where they should be on the Lord Jesus Christ So the very simple application here is to be well acquainted with the life and ministry of Christ. Be well acquainted with the life and ministry of Christ. I don't know of a better recipe for sustaining your trust in Christ than reading and meditating on the Gospels. J.I. Packer once said that Christians should read from the Gospels every day. And I think he's right. 
as you immerse yourself in the gospel accounts, you encounter day after day after day the comforting ministry of the Savior. There is hardly a chapter that you would go to in the gospel accounts where you don't see Jesus showing mercy to sinners. You see, as you read in those accounts, you see how Christ is God's consolation to us. And in seeing the comfort the Savior provides, your faith is strengthened for perseverance. So read of Christ, brothers and sisters. Immerse yourself in the Gospel accounts and be encouraged. Why can we trust in the midst of trouble? Because Jesus is God's consolation to us. There's a second reason why we trust in the midst of trouble, and it comes in verses 4-7. through We trust in the midst of trouble because Jesus is God's provision for us. Jesus is God's provision for us. In verse 4, Jesus tells His disciples they know the way to where He is going. Jesus is talking about Himself, but the disciples don't understand. Notice Thomas's misguided question in verse 5. Lord, we do not know where You are going. How can we know the way? Thomas is off base because he's thinking from a worldly point of view. He's looking for a literal path, a literal way, a series of steps that they need to take in order to follow Jesus to this unknown destination. You see, that's the problem. The disciples are too focused on what they must do when they should be focused on who Jesus is. Indeed, that's where Jesus goes in verse 6. Notice that Jesus doesn't answer Thomas by giving him directions. Jesus answers Thomas by pointing to Himself. Verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Friends, there's hardly any statement in the Bible that more clearly presents Jesus as the sole provision for sinners to be reconciled to the Holy God. And that's the key here. Jesus is not merely claiming to be the way into heaven. You've you got to get this to understand John 14. Heaven is a big deal because God is there. So Jesus is not merely saying, hey, if you trust me, I'll let you go to heaven where you won't die. He's not just talking about heaven. He's claiming to be the way to know and relate to God. Verse 6 is fundamentally a God-centered proclamation that relationship with the living God is solely provided in Jesus. Piece by piece, Jesus presents Himself as the divine provision for fallen humanity. If this was the only verse we had, we would have enough to say Jesus is God. He's the, so, he's the divine provision. In fact, let's just do this for a moment. Let's take Jesus' words in verse 6 piece by piece so that we feel the magnitude of His claim. Just piece by piece. As the way, Jesus provides complete access to the Father. Complete access to the Father. Jesus is the only Son who has come from the Father, and therefore it's only in Jesus that sinners have access to God. He is the way. As the truth, Jesus definitively shows us the Father. Remember, Jesus is the Word made flesh. The Word of what? The Word of God. And so therefore, only Jesus is able to explain what the Father is like. We'll return to this in a moment. But for now, it's enough to note that only Jesus can make the Father known. He is the truth. As the life, Jesus is the sole source of relationship 
with God. Jesus has life in Himself, and the life He gives is to know the living God. This is what Jesus Himself will say in just a few chapters in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. Life is found in relationship to God, and it's only in Jesus that that sinners enter that relationship. Jesus is the life. So put those pieces together and you see how Jesus is God's provision. Access to God, knowledge of God, relationship with God. Access to God, knowledge of God, relationship with God. Each of those are found only in Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life. Now you probably picked up on the exclusivity in that exposition of verse 6. Jesus is God's provision, and He is the only provision. I hope that was clear from what I've said. But I also want you to see that this exclusivity is not my idea. It's not the church's idea. It wasn't decreed by a council. This exclusivity comes straight from the text of the Bible. Notice the definiteness in Jesus' words. He does not say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. That's far too open-ended to describe the Son of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life with the implication that there is no other way, no other truth, no other life. Jesus is God's exclusive provision for sinners like us. It's definite. But still, Jesus is not finished. He is burdened that we get this point and that we get it without question. Notice the end of verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, that statement needs no exposition. Jesus has made Himself perfectly plain so there can be no excuse. The only way to know God is through Jesus Christ. The only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. The only way to have eternal life is through Jesus Christ. And understand, it must be this way. It must be this way. If we deny the exclusivity of Christ, then we cut ourselves off from salvation. Jesus must be the way, or else there is no way. Jesus alone must save, or else no one is being saved. Why is that? Because only God can reveal God. Only God can bring sinners into God's presence. And therefore, only the Son of God can be the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son because no one has come from the Father except the Son. He alone must be the Savior. I don't know the spiritual state of every person in here today but it's very likely that there are folks among us who have yet to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're searching for spiritual truth, but you seem to keep coming up empty. Maybe you've tried religion, but it just doesn't seem to work out. Or or maybe you're here because it's Christmas Eve and someone invited you to church. Whatever the case, I plead with you to hear the words of the Lord Jesus. He's telling you clearly from His Word that if you want to know God, you must come to God through Him. If you want to know truth, you must look to Christ. So the question that this text is putting forward to the person who doesn't know Christ is, won't you trust Him today? 
This is the mercy and grace of God. Won't you trust Him today? There's no other way to eternal life. Religion can't save you. Good works can't save you. You can't save you. Only Christ can save. So, by faith, place your life in His hands and come to know the salvation that only He can provide. Trust Him. Before we go on, there's one other aspect of Christ's exclusivity that I want to draw out for us. And I hope it will encourage those of you who are trusting in the Lord Jesus. The exclusivity of Christ means Jesus is the only Savior, but it also means Jesus is the certain Savior. It's like a coin. Exclusivity is on one side and certainty is on the other. Jesus is the way, so those who trust in Him will certainly enter God's presence. Jesus is the truth, so those who trust in Him will certainly know the living God. Jesus is the life, so those who trust in Him will certainly enjoy life with God forever. Do you see the encouragement, brothers and sisters? This is why we trust God in the midst of trouble, because Jesus is the exclusive Savior, and therefore He's a certain Savior. He will not fail. So if you're a Christian here today, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what it means to be a Christian. If you're a Christian today, you do not have to fear that you will be barred from God's presence. You've already entered God's presence in Christ. You do not have to be anxious over whether or not you will gain eternal life. You have eternal life in Christ. You don't have to wonder if God is withholding Himself from you. You know God fully and freely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let those certain realities sustain your faith both today and every day, until we see the Lord face to face. Why can we trust in the midst of trouble? Because Jesus is God's provision to us, and His provision is certain. The Lord Jesus gives us one final reason for faith, and it comes in verses 8 to 11. We trust in the midst of trouble because Jesus is God's revelation among us. Jesus is God's revelation among us. Despite Jesus' clarity in verse 6, the disciples still struggle to understand. This time it's Philip who makes the misguided request. Notice verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. You see, Philip thinks the disciples need fresh revelation from God. Philip is asking for something like what Moses experienced on Mount Sinai. Just a glimpse. Just give us a glimpse, Jesus. We're not asking for everything. Just to give us a glimpse and, and we'll, be, we'll be satisfied. What Philip fails to understand is that Jesus Himself is that final revelation. Once again, the disciples are too fixated on themselves when they should be focused on Jesus. So beginning in verse 9, Jesus corrects their misunderstanding there's a lot in Jesus' response, more than we can cover this morning. So I want us to simply focus in on one statement that captures the entirety of Jesus' response. It's the end of verse 9. Notice what Jesus says, the end of verse 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If verse 6 revealed Jesus' exclusivity, then verse 9 displays His finality. We need no further revelation because Jesus is the complete and final revelation of God. Let's just put it as clearly as we can. 
To know Jesus by faith is to know the invisible God. The, the beginning of, Gospel John, of the Gospel of John in chapter 1, the Apostle wrote, no one has ever seen God. Jesus is saying, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. To, to know Jesus is to know God. The entirety of God's character is on display in Jesus Christ. Do you want to see God's holiness? Then look to the sinless life of Christ. Do you want to see God's mercy? Then look to the compassionate ministry of Christ. Do you want to see God's grace? Then look to the saving substitutionary death of Christ. To see Jesus by faith is to know the living God. But there's more here, friends. It might sneak past us at first, but notice who is making this claim in verse 9. Who is speaking in verse 9? Jesus of Nazareth. The fully human, flesh and blood, like us in every way, yet without sin, Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, God's final revelation did not come to us in thunder like on Mount Sinai. It did not blaze out at us like the fire at the burning bush. It did not come veiled behind a curtain like in the temple. No, the final definitive revelation of God came to us in flesh and blood. God revealed Himself to us in the most personal and relational way possible as a human being. We have seen the glory of God in the human face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the kindness and mercy of God. God could have remained far off, distant from us because of our sin. You do know that, right? God was not obligated to come near to you. He could have remained far off. But in His kindness, the invisible holy God has drawn near to us by taking on our humanity. What's more, God could have revealed Himself in a way that terrified us. Remember, God is an all-consuming fire. So the revelation of His glory would have overwhelmed us with the weight of His awesomeness. But in His mercy, the all-consuming God revealed Himself in Jesus Christ, fully human like us in every way, yet without sin. Friends, when you look at Jesus, there can be no doubt concerning the Father's heart towards His people. The Father wants to know and relate to His people. And He has done everything necessary to make relationship a reality. There can be no doubt. I don't know about you, but one of my persistent struggles as a Christian is this idea that God seems distant. That He's far off. I crave His nearness, and yet I struggle so often with what I perceive to be His distance. And when I say often, I mean like every other day. I wonder if you can relate to that. You want to know God, but He just seems distant. If so, then the Bible has some incredible good news for you. You don't need an endless pursuit of a specific feeling. You don't need an endless chase after an emotional experience. The Bible's answer for you is the incarnation of the Son of God. When you look to Jesus in faith, you know with absolute certainty that God is near to you. I'm going to say it again. When you look to Jesus in faith, you know with absolute certainty that God is near to you. Brothers and sisters, I pray this truth would sustain your faith. If you think about it, this is really the heart of why we celebrate Advent. 
We rejoice that God has come near in Christ. And then on the basis of that truth, we trust God will bring us home with Him one day with the return of Christ. God is not far off. He's near. So near, in fact, we see Him most clearly in the human face of Jesus Christ. Why can we trust in the midst of trouble? Because Jesus is God's revelation among us. We said at the outset that even in our secular culture, Christmas is often associated with themes of light and joy. And while the cultural celebration of Christmas is often quite shallow, there is a sense in which the culture speaks better than it knows. Light has come into our darkness. Not the light of nostalgia and tradition, but the light of the glory of God radiating brightly from the face of Jesus Christ. And there is joy to be found. Not the joy of sentimentality, but the joy of knowing that in Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who trust in Christ. That's the good news of Christmas, brothers and sisters. And those realities are so rock solid, so immovable, they enable us to trust our Father even in the midst of trouble. So may we rejoice in the incarnation of Christ and may the truth of His coming sustain us in faith as we wait for His return. Amen? Let's pray.